0: It's the 19th of August, 1930, and in the port of Venice, a young Indian physicist, not yet even the age of 20, steps off the SS Pilsner after a long voyage that started quite a few weeks ago from Bombay in India. He's looking forward to the next leg of his journey, which will finally take him to his anticipated destination, Cambridge in the United Kingdom, where he is soon to start his doctoral studies. But unbeknownst to him, the thoughts that have been keeping him awake all this time on the steamer will one day result in one of the most revolutionary ideas in physics and kickstart one of the most bitter arguments in the history of the 20th century.
1: Episode. and this is the fourth episode of the open universe podcast
0: no one asked for it
1: you're still getting it
0: <laughs> <laughs> very few people are still asking for it yeah
1: <laughs> so the title of today's episode is the final voyage in the life of a star and this is based on a research article by subramanian Shekhar called The Maximum Mass of an Ideal White dwarf,
0: And it's a pretty uh, opportune time to be recording this episode, isn't it? Because rather coincidentally, and absolutely not by design at all, today is in fact the 110th anniversary of Subramanian uh, Chandrasekhar himself. That's pretty Yeah,
1: cool. October 19th, oh, 1910. 1910,
0: exactly. I don't know about you, Anna, but I had... Like, I think more than any other episode so far, I went down so many different channels and went on so many diverging paths while doing my research on this particular episode.
1: I know. And I remember us uh, discussing whether to choose even this paper because it was so short and we were wondering if we would even have enough material to, to discuss it. And now, well, I guess we'll just have to see how long it takes us.
0: Should we tell the listeners that we've actually started even like thinking of the screenplay and casting roles (laughs) of the movie that we're (laughs) bound to make about
1: this?
0: (laughs) So the objects of interest in today's episode are these uh, very curious uh, celestial entities called white dwarfs. And these are particularly interesting classes of stars because they really represent the end state in the evolution of most ordinary stars. But what really makes them different is that whereas ordinary stars uh, keep burning bright thanks to this process of nuclear fusion that takes place inside them, white dwarf stars aren't actually doing that any longer. And they just have a lot of residual energy and heat that is left over after the evolved stages of the star. And it is this radiation that just continues to burn away and uh, sustain the star till well, for billions and billions of years thereafter really.
1: That's really amazing when you think about it because they are white because they're very hot. So that means that there is just a lot of heat that, that is still left in this small object being just radiated away.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I guess theoretically, because there's no further energy injection, there will come a point where all of the radiation is gone and technically this white dwarf dims continuously and could eventually turn into a black dwarf.
1: So I guess the the white dwarfs are doing like the aging in reverse instead of becoming whiter, like their hair (laughs) becomes grayer (laughs) and ultimately black.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) The Benjamin Button of stars. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) But well, but apparently the, the time that it takes to do this is, you know, longer than, you know, the length of time that the universe has been around for so far, so...
1: So I
0: guess they're firmly white for now. For now, yes, I think they'll have to deal with their geriatric state. So interestingly, white dwarfs were first uh, discovered, although they weren't necessarily called that at the time, as far back as 1783, when the astronomer William Herschel discovered a particularly curious set of stars in the sky. And they were curious because they formed a triple system of stars that were orbiting one another. This system is called 40 Eridani. And about 200, well, actually not 200 years, but maybe around 130 years later, astronomers were able to actually classify these different kinds of stars. And one of the stars in the Eridana system uh, was marked as being of a particular spectral type or of a particular classification, uh, which was basically a type A or a white star.
1: And this is really nice connection to the, our previous episode because the classification was done by the same group of women that we talked about last time.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And this fact that that the white dwarf was one of the first white dwarfs discovered was in the systems of stars, not the star on its own but actually bound to to other stars and which orbit each other, turned out to be really fortuitous. Um, So we kind of lucked out there because it turns out that one of the brightest stars in the night sky or the brightest star in in the northern night sky called Sirius also had a small companion, a faint companion, which ended up being a white dwarf. And because those two stars are orbiting each other from their relative motions, it is possible to calculate what is the gravitational pull of each star. And it turned out that this star, a white dwarf, which was fairly faint, was actually much larger than expected, which meant that it was a fairly dense star. So much so that when astronomers went to actually calculate its density, it turns out that it was a million times denser than water.
0: Wow. Well, that sounds like you know something that is. What did you say was like a million times yeah, denser than anything? Yeah, it was a million anything? times wow.
1: denser than than water. Um, wow.
0: So, so I mean, I would have thought that something that dense would have the ability to almost sort of collapse under its own weight and be crushed by its own gravity, wouldn't it? So, so what's actually you know holding these objects up?
1: Yeah, that was a big mystery for the astronomers at the time. Nothing that we are familiar with uh, has been compressed that much. So it it sounded like we are really entering in a new regime. Everything that surrounds us is built out of atoms. And at the center of an atom is a nucleus that is built out of protons and neutrons. And this is very, very small. However, it is surrounded by a cloud of electrons which is 10,000 times larger than the size of the nucleus. And so one way you can compress matter more than you could uh, compress individual atoms is sort of to strip those electrons to form like a sea that surrounds these unbound nuclei. And this is what astronomers hypothesized at the, in the early 20th century is the structure of the white dwarf, that it is actually just a, a bunch of uh, atomic nuclei moving on their own in this sea of electrons.
0: So physicists always like to try to approximate very complex systems with very simple analogies. And the analogy that they came to in regards to how white dwarfs actually manage to support themselves under their own gravity, is by saying that you could basically treat them as being these gases made up of sea, uh, uh, you know, uh, a swirling sea of electrons. And the sea of electrons is a rather curious entity of its own, because this comes at around the same time when there was a revolution happening at the very opposite end of the scale of the universe in the world on the realm of quantum physics. But slowly, physicists were beginning to realize that electrons, or more generally a class of particles called fermions, have a very unique property in that they seem to want to kind of avoid one another. Now what does that mean?
1: Does this mean that they were socially distancing way back in 1930? <laughs>
0: they're, the, they're the original social distances. <laughs> Have you mentioned social distancing in every one of the episodes so far? Because I'm, I'm pretty if sure... If we, we haven't,
1: said. I think we yeah. should going forward.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I'm pretty sure we said that about the ultimate fate of the universe and like everything will be like maximally social distance. So <laughs> yes, yeah, so um,
1: I think we did. We might have yeah. skipped the last one, but...
0: Maybe not in good portion, yeah. So this goes back to a discovery made by... Uh, Wolfgang Pauli, who essentially said that electrons can be labeled essentially with a set of numbers called quantum numbers. And you can pretty much identify an electron just as you would identify another person on the basis of these numbers. But what he said that was particularly insightful was that within an atom, No two electrons that shared the same labels or properties as one another could possibly occupy the same energy levels or energy states within this atom. And so they always have to move to either a different level or that system cannot exist. And one way I like to think, yeah, and one way I like to think about this is imagine you had a number of guests at a hotel who were particularly snooty and decided that they would not at all uh, want to share a space on the same floor with another guest at the hotel. And so the, um, you know, embattled uh, (laughs) hotel manager is left with no choice but to assign one floor per guest. And so that way you can only ever construct a hotel that expands upwards in the vertical direction with one guest on top of one another, rather than spreading it. Uh, horizontally. And so this idea that electrons, if they share the same labels as one another, constantly are forced to occupy higher and higher and higher energy states, is what has now become known as the Pauli exclusion principle, or Pauli's inference that electrons will exclude one another from their own space. And what this Exclusion principle essentially does is that by forcing electrons to higher and higher energy levels, it sort of builds up an extreme amount of pressure within this, uh, within the substance that they actually reside in, which in the case of the white dwarf is this sea of electrons. And it is this pressure that is created by essentially stacking electrons on top of one another that is ultimately able to resist the gravitational collapse of the star.
1: Ah. That's such a nice meeting of the different scales.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's probably one of the first ex- I mean, I, I wonder how often there has been this sort of insight of, you know, quantum mechanics kind of directly feeding into the physical interpretation of something in an astronomical context. It must be one of the first examples of it.
1: And definitely the first example of this particular phenomenon of the exclusion principle being applied in astronomy. So, this was quite lucky that so many things were coming together at the same time. And white wars, which have been a huge puzzle for a while, now it seemed like we might actually be able to explain how they exist in essence as. As Sonak mentioned before, there was this big question of uh, what keeps them together, what resists the, the gravitational pull of this dense material. And degeneracy pressure of the electrons was a very good candidate to do the job. And what some astronomers at the time were doing is calculating, okay, exactly how much pressure can, can the electrons of a given density provide of a star? It turns out that for slowly moving electrons can support quite, um, quite a bit of matter. And it turns out that even if you keep adding matter to a star, so increasing the mass of the white dwarf, the, the size shrinks so that it it's com- gets compressed a little bit more. But still, this pressure of electrons can keep it uh, from total collapse and the no matter what, how high of a mass you, you try to put on this white dwarf structure, like the sea of degenerate electrons can support against the collapse. But what Chandrasekhar noticed is that if the material becomes sufficiently dense, then some of those electrons will no longer be slowly moving. Some will get, uh, have quite a high energy and move very fast.
0: Yeah, I think saying quite a high energy is uh, perhaps <laughs> underselling it a little bit. <laughs> But essentially, Chandrasekhar's insight was seemingly pretty simple when you think about it, but it has rather profound consequences. Because he essentially had this intuition that if you imagine just stacking together all of these electrons on top of one another and putting them on increasingly higher and higher and higher energy levels the electrons which are at the very topmost floors of this hotel, to go back to that same analogy, uh, will be especially agitated because they're at extremely high energy. Now, energy essentially in this case corresponds to the kinetic energy or the energy of the motion of these electrons. And pretty soon, Chandrasekhar realized that this energy would be large enough that the electrons themselves would be moving at very close to the speed of light. And what becomes rather exceptional at this limit is that when objects start moving close to the speed of light, the ordinary laws of physics as described to us by Newton, for example, which was roughly speaking, the kinds of physics that had been applied up until this point to white dwarfs, would no longer actually work. And instead, one would have to resort to the theory of special relativity, which Einstein had written down just two decades ago and actually completely rework the equations according to this new formulation of how things move in space.
1: So yeah, that's really remarkable how Chandrasekhar pulled all of these uh, hottest trends in physics and applied them to white dwarfs. What Chandrasekhar went to do is take Einstein's laws of motion and apply them in this situation. And so what he ended up finding is that in this case, when the electrons are moving so fast, they are no longer able to provide the same amount of pressure as when they were not moving as fast. And so with this more limited uh, ability to combat gravitational pull of the rest of the material in the white dwarf, it turns out that there is some uh, maximum mass uh, of white dwarf uh, or this degenerate electron pressure at relativistic speeds can support. And this became known as the Chandra limit. It turns out that if you increase the mass of the white dwarf beyond this point, the size goes to, the size of the white dwarf goes to zero.
0: Mm, that sounds like it could result in something rather catastrophic, couldn't it?
1: Yeah. It's it was unimaginable at the time. It felt like you no one ever heard of a star with of a size zero
0: yeah and you can imagine maybe the listeners are already thinking about what that could potentially uh, imply but you can imagine that such a prediction would have caused a real stir in the astronomy community at the time and this was especially the case because it was rather an audacious you know uh, statement that was been made by <laughs> this young 20-year-old student who had just turned up from out of nowhere claiming to have discovered this you know solution to the conundrum of white dwarfs that had real profound ramifications for the nature of reality so to speak
1: interestingly this was not so, a very high mass it was not i think if it was something that's much larger than the mass of the or like if it only applied to the uh, largest stars people might kind of deal with this as being maybe some sort of exception that happens rarely. And so it's like, okay, but the actual number Chandrasekhar got was on the order of the mass of the sun. And we know that the sun is a fairly typical star. There are many stars that are kind of the mass of the sun or even slightly more massive.
0: Yeah, so the implication that in fact, you could have not just a handful of stars, but potentially um, you know, the vast majority of stars could, put, you know, run down this uh, exotic hill of having some kind of finite mass, but pretty much zero size, was really something that shook the foundations of physics at the time. And what's interesting in, is in reading Chandrasekhar's biography, and, and I'm sure you came across uh, similar statements, it really does sound like he was very much out on his own during the initial stages of formulating these ideas with very few people willing to actually back him publicly.
1: Yeah, it definitely seemed like this was an earth-shattering <laughs> finding. And I think people are comfortable with old ideas. It's really uncomfortable uh, imagining things outside of what you are used to. And interestingly, in, in those same uh, reading about those times, it felt like Chandrasekhar's ideas have been better accepted by the physics community. And I wonder how much all of this revolution happening with quantum mechanics and reimagining re- what the atom is, what the, the laws, uh, laws of motion are, whether that has something to do with uh, physics at the time being more open-minded about uh, the possibility of having completely collapsed stars.
0: I wonder if there was a tendency amongst astronomers to kind of almost cloud their faith or their trust in the physical ramifications of a mathematical proof um, based on their preconceived notions of what they thought, you know, reality or nature should look like. Whereas maybe the physicists are less biased or were less biased by these things because they were seeing, you know, their entire intellectual framework being turned upside down already by the quantum mechanics revolution, as you, as you just said.
1: Yeah, that's. I think that very well might, might have uh, played a part in it because so much innovation in physics has come from the theoretical side. Whereas I think astronomy has, since the prehistoric time really being uh, driven by observations and this is something you can see and people are used to trust what they can see, where, whereas here really what Chandrasekhar was asking is to, to put trust in his calculations and applications of this new theory of statistic, quantum statistics, new theory of relativity and applying that in this unusual situation in a, in a white dwarf. So it, it kind of really like asked our reader to be comfortable in saying like, oh, yes, we can take all of these abstract things and, and use a mathematical framework to put them together and explain them.
0: This sort of reminds me of a quote that is attributed to Chandrasekhar Shaker from one of the interviews that I saw him give, where he says that theoretical astronomy must provide for astronomy what experiments have provided for physics. In other words, you must provide a basis for calculation, which is so right that nobody can argue about that. So you can then integrate that with your observations as something that is valid. Yeah, I think that's a very, you know, it's a very different way of thinking about astronomy, because I think for millennia, people have been doing astronomy as something where you see something through a telescope and then try to figure out what it is rather than being the reverse process of you calculating something that implies something about nature, which you can then verify. So it's kind of like a reversal of the scientific method as applied to astronomy, which I'm sure is part of the reason that this uh, idea of the maximum mass of white dwarfs uh, really kind of disturbed people a little bit.
1: Yeah. And it might be that there wasn't even that much expertise among other astronomers to repeat that calculation because the... The paper itself is fairly short. It, it seems like there was a lot of the calculation done by Chandra Chandrasekhar beforehand, and this uh, paper just provides a summary of his results. And trying to go through that calculation myself, it's a it's a pretty involved one. Like it's not your leisurely afternoon activity. It really actually takes some mathematical skills to uh, to, de- to derive this dependence between the the pressure and the density of electrons and then convert that into the balance that against the gravity to, to get the relation between the, the mass and the size uh, of a star.
0: I was reading a little bit more about uh, Chandrasekhar actually and uh, what became clear was that everyone kind of said that this, this feature of him being so sort of at ease with the mathematical method and then applying this to an extremely complex problem and taking it all the way from start to finish was something that really uh, defined his work. And that's especially amazing, actually, when you think about the fact that a lot of his early education was pretty much just driven by self-tutored mathematics. So he had, he basically sort of borrowed textbooks from libraries to teach him about, you know, the latest mathematical methods to teach him self about what was known about astronomy, uh, many of which were textbooks written by people who became, who went on to become his colleagues uh, in Cambridge. And to take it from that point to uh, the stage where, you know, he came up with this uh, rather profound result is, I think, uh, quite remarkable.
1: Yeah, it's, it's completely astounding that he was basically homeschooled. For a long time. And I really like this quote. I, I have, have it just handy uh, by accident here, uh, where he comments that he learned about the, the quantum physics from uh, Sommerfeld's book. And he actually met Sommerfeld when he, his, on his tour of India. And then he comments that Sommerfeld's book is one from which one could read and learn oneself. On the other hand, there were other books which I started on my own and I couldn't read and directly learn.
0: Sommerfeld, it should be said, was one of the early proponents of this idea of, well, he was very invested in the idea of condensed systems. Uh, In other words, systems that have very high densities of particles in them in the laboratory, uh, which was, of course, the insight that led to Chandrasekhar applying the same principles to white dwarfs eventually. So it's a rather cute little historical loop that is tied up that way.
1: Yeah, it's it just seems so remarkable how many threads came together. Well, I'm sure Chandrasekhar read a lot of other books, but I guess this, was, this ended up being the relevant one for this problem.
0: Yeah, in one of his quotes, he also says that he used to borrow journals of the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society and actually read every single astrophysics article f- from the beginning to the end. And then he did the same for articles produced in Nature and every one of the other publications that came along. And I, well, I firstly don't do that, but secondly, I don't <laughs> think I've ever even owned a physical copy of any of these in my life, to be honest. So uh, Quite a different time.
1: It's not just you, Like I've never heard of anyone, really, reading all of the papers in a particular journal.
0: Yeah, and he, you know, by by no means did he sort of grow up in a particularly underprivileged or a particularly overprivileged uh, familial background, but, you know, he came from pretty modest uh, means uh, and grew grew up in uh, Madras in the south of India, and at the age of 19 embarked upon this, you know, Great journey to the other side of the world, where all the great intellectuals of the day uh, were based, and in Cambridge University in the UK. And what was quite astounding uh, was to hear about how he felt really quite isolated by that experience, not just in terms of social interaction, but I think he felt pretty intellectually cowed as well. And there's this particular uh, quote that struck me again in this interview. Which is, which is hosted on the American Institute of Physics uh, website, which we'll provide a link to as well with the supplementary material that accompanies this episode. But he says that, you know, when I went to England, I had a shattering experience to suddenly find myself in an environment where there were people like Dirac and Eddington and Rutherford and Hardy, not to mention all the other well-known names. And it is a very sobering experience. I was extremely optimistic in India before I left India. But once I came to England, I became very sobered, if not humiliated. I didn't really know whether there was any possibility for me to accomplish in the world I found myself.
1: Yes, imposter bias at its best.
0: Yeah, exactly. But little that... <laughs> Happens you know to the best of us. I did quite literally the best, because yeah. it turns out that this little calculation that we spoke about and that he sort of did on board the, the ship that took him all the way from India to England was uh, part of the work that eventually won him the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1983. Yeah. So I bet he, if he had known that at the time, I wonder if he would have still felt as intellectually dwarfed.
1: It was great that this work was recognized by the Swedish Academy in 1983. However, it had taken the astronomy community a long time to actually accept these results. And there were some bitter arguments that Chandra had with his basically mentor at Cambridge, Arthur Eddington, about the, the existence of a maximum mass the white force can attain. So yeah, at the time, Eddington was the the most famous and the most uh, well-established astronomer and he did many important things including understand uh, or provide a first description of the structure of the stars Uh, so he was definitely an expert on the topic and he did not agree with the misresult or rather not agreeing is not really the right word. He just thought that it would be inconceivable that a star could have a zero mass, that it could collapse into nothing. And so he, he would rather think that there was something wrong with the calculation uh, or whether that, that you couldn't just take all of these different uh, physical theories and combine them into one another together so that there was some conceptual error in this uh, calculation rather than accept the existence of something like a star with a zero mass. And he was very vocal about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, as the story goes, so Chandrasekhar and Eddington had been in constant uh, communication, of course, being colleagues Mm -hmm. in Cambridge. And it's said that Chandrasekhar had constantly told Eddington about the latest developments with his work. Um, and then after giving his uh, talk at the Royal Astronomical Society, Eddington then got up and then basically spent the good part of an hour conti- you know, in the process of just destroying Chandrasekhar's uh, speech and, in, in effect, kind of destroying his reputation in front of the world of astronomy that stood before them. He. I think very famously said that I hope I leave... So this is Eddington Mm -hmm. famously said that I hope I leave this room alive because nothing of what you have heard just now, speaking of Chandrasekhar's talk, uh, can be possibly correct. And he basically then said that all of the arguments that were made about there being a maximum mass to these white dwarf stars beyond which they would undergo this sort of uh, unstoppable collapse, radiating... Uh, into nothing and being trapped by their own gravity, was just was just you know fanciful notions that had no basis in reality, um, and this must have really hurt the young Chandrasekhar at that time because he would have been no more than twenty three or twenty four years old at that time, and this was his great mentor, someone whom he trusted, and someone whom he had you know constantly updated about this work now standing in front of the public for the very first time, actually expressing his disgust, in some sense, of these scientific results. And for all intents and purposes, Chandrasekhar was really, really hurt by by this, as you can imagine, and probably never quite recovered from this public embarrassment. But that, of course, did not uh, lead to him changing his mind. And he really stuck to his guns and said that, well, my calculation is correct. And this must be the case, whether or not you think this is possible, because this is what physics tells me, not because of, not, or rather, this is what physics tells me and not what I think should be the case, because this is what I think nature should be like.
1: Yeah, that was a very humble approach to science, saying like accepting everything you find, not just the, the results that you think that you like. But it ended up with Chandra Shaker both leaving the, the UK and ultimately settling in Chicago and also kind of moving to work in different fields and where he also contributed so richly. So really, he, he revolutionized many areas of astrophysics and maybe in, in future episodes, we get to some of his other contributions. But it does seem unfortunate that his... Um, episode in in studying for, uh, structures of stars ended on such a bitter note.
0: And they never managed to reconcile that argument, right? Because Eddington died not too long after that episode in the Royal Astronomical Society. Although it is said that Chandrasekhar did uh, give a eulogy at uh, Eddington's funeral, where he was a pre generous about um, his comments about his former mentor. So he maybe didn't uh, keep the grudge all that long.
1: True gentleman.
0: True gentleman.
1: And this certainly was a formative experience, or at least it appears to have been a very formative experience for, for Chandrasekhar, because at some point he was in a position to judge a work of a Guess not established astronomer who came up with a result that was very unexpected and that preeminent experts did not agree on. And this was the case with the Parker wind, where uh, Parker developed a theory on the supersonic solar wind and predicted there should be a strong width of solar particles at the location of the Earth and. He submits, so Parker submitted this work to the Astrophysical Journal, where the editor for a couple of decades uh, was Chandra Shekhar. And there were two reviewers, unlike today, where there's really only one, and there are two reviewers that shut down her work, said like, no, this is no good. Uh, And then Chandrasekhar overruled them, saying that he couldn't find any inconsistencies in Parker's derivation and published the work. And, well, only recently there was the Parker solar probe uh, (laughs) designed to to measure this wind, carrying the name of the Parker, Eugene Parker, who actually turned out to be correct.
0: There you go. So Chandrasekhar very much uh, stuck to his principles even in his role where the roles are reversed in some sense, right? Where he had the role of the, of Eddington in some sense, but clearly he didn't let that particular phase change him. Well, it's a pretty good thing that he actually stuck to his principles throughout all of those years, despite, you know, being shunned by the majority of the community, because the great legacy of Chandrasekhar's work that we've just discussed from 1931 is that the inevitable end state of a white dwarf that exceeds its maximum mass is basically an object that inevitably collapses in on itself through its own gravity and then just becomes this mysterious shadows region in space-time where gravity is so strong that even the faint illumination that radiated from a white dwarf will no longer be able to escape. And of course, based on this particular description you might think that, well, this sounds a little bit like what a black hole is. <laughs> and exactly. You is, would
1: be correct.
0: <laughs> you would be correct. And so Chandrasekhar, in some sense, laid down the mathematical foundations that predict the existence of black holes. And this is all the way back in 1931, of course, when these calculations were made. And of course, black holes now seem like something everyone's heard of and is a part of our everyday lives in some sense. And we've... I even managed to image black holes uh, pretty recently, but back then this was a completely, you know, exotic, pretty crazy idea that was a result of a mathematical theory.
1: Yeah, even now I think people are still there. Like black holes are still exotic objects, but people accept them as yeah. existing. And later on, Chandra experienced another clash between the established idea and and a new idea. But this time he was in the role of an arbiter instead of the participant. And it happened when Eugene Parker, a young professor of astronomy at the University of Chicago, where Chandra was also a professor, was solving hydrodynamical equations for the solar corona in 1957. And in doing that, he proved that there should be a stream of particles radiating from the sun all the way to the, to the earth. And probably even beyond. And that was really controversial. And the two referees that uh, the journal uh, assigned to gauge this work were very dismissive. They totally did not believe that this could be happening. However, Chandra, who was the editor of the um, astrophysical journal, He didn't find anything wrong with the calculation, and as the editor, he overruled the referees and decided to accept the paper. And it turns out he was right to do so because a few years later, this solar wind was detected. And a couple of years ago, NASA launched a space mission called Parker Solar Probe to actually study this in a lot more detail. So I think it kind of just goes to show how important it was for Chandra personally not to limit himself uh, with what he thought or what other people thought was how a universe works, but instead to trust the mathematics and physics of these phenomena. And this really has served him well personally in all of his findings, but through him and his role as the editor, also the astronomical community in a broader sense.
0: That's a great example of uh, using your power for good, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it truly is. Um, because,
0: you know, he's, he's quite clearly someone who, as you said, was on the receiving end of, you know, power being used in an inconsiderate way to yeah. sort of suppress, uh, you know, his voice. But when he found himself in that sort of privileged position, uh, he clearly, you know, looked past the prejudices and um, perhaps the short-sightedness of (laughs) the referees and said that, you know, nothing about this calculation looks especially wrong to me and I think it deserves to be published and lo and behold, he was uh, right not for the first time in his life.
1: For sure. And it's just like also a certain kind of dedication. I feel like as an editor, you receive a lot of submissions of, of... Journal articles, and I assume that he didn't have time to go through all of them. So I thought yeah. it was really important that he he made this decision to look into this in detail, and he actually checked the whole calculation, which is pretty yeah. remarkable.
0: Maybe perhaps there was a uh, an element of you know batting for your own team, considering the University of Chicago link mm. as well. Who knows? Well, this is conspiracy theory talk. <laughs> but that aside, I think. I think Chandra's Chandrasekhar's legacy really extends uh, to well beyond just the immediate impact of the articles uh, that he wrote or indeed that he was the editor for. He was by all accounts a pretty prolific teacher as well, having tutored a very vast uh, number of courses during his time at the University of Chicago. And what's quite amazing is that in every sort of biography that you read about him, you always hear about how dedicated he was to the craft of teaching. So I'm just looking at this newsletter from the news office at uh, the University of Chicago, who, which talks about how in the 1940s, he would make this a uh, weekly 200 mile round trip from Yerkes Observatory in Williams Bay, Wisconsin, which is presumably where somewhere he worked at and during some point in his working life and would drive from there to the University of Chicago uh, to teach a class on stellar atmospheres, which is, of course, you know, something that you would think he's pretty dab-handed at. (laughs) And so not only is that dedication to drive 200 miles uh, in every week quite laudable, but it's also the case that even on days when perhaps the weather or other elements were against him, he would sort of you know still in t- uh, insist on doing so In fact there's this is um anecdote is of him this time one day. for
1: another social distancing joke and remote working that at the time <laughs> was not possible who actually had to brave the weather
0: yep i think I, <laughs> I think it's inevitable isn't it but yeah so Sorry. this is no <laughs> that's right. uh but this is a story of him driving all the way from the observatory to uh, the university in the middle of an extremely heavy snowstorm and ended up teaching a class of only two students uh, on that particular day. And interestingly enough, the two students he ended up teaching on that given day were Sung Dao Li and Chen Ning Yang, (laughs) both of whom ended up winning the 1957 uh, Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, which was quite a long way before uh, Chandrasekhar himself actually managed to do, which was in 1983. But even uh, apart from his teaching in classrooms, he also was a very prolific writer of uh, textbooks. So he wrote no less than 10 textbooks by my count here. And what's quite amazing, Anna, is that if you sort of look across the titles of these uh, books, they span such a wide range of topics all the way from, of course, the study of stars and the atmospheres of stars, which is, you know, what we've been talking about in this particular episode. But he was always interested in a variety of subjects, including things like the dynamics of the motions of stars, plasma physics, uh, radiative transfer, so how you know heat sort of moves across space, the study of black holes. And in fact, he also has a rather interesting book or an interesting book title, which talks about Truth and Beauty, Aesthetics and Motivations in Science, which is this uh, treatise by him on the sort of confluence of science and art and philosophy. So really uh, a true intellectual uh, from the sounds of it.
1: Yeah, he did have a very unique approach to science. And I remember reading an interview where he was saying that he really wanted to wander in, in different fields and kind of stay and uh, working on one uh, in one field of astronomy until he felt like he understood it and yeah. basically the writing the textbook uh, about this field would be sort of a, the pinnacle of his understanding of this field and then he sort of moved on and this i think is a fairly unusual approach to in the and in a sense a, a, a poetic one
0: yeah absolutely i think I I can't remember exactly where I read this, but one of the recurring things that is said about uh, Chandrasekhar is that every one of his papers would involve a very sort of in-depth, comprehensive mathematical approach, almost as though you were kind of trying to reason yourself or teach yourself through Mm -hmm. that subject for the first time. But he was kind of, you know, doing these calculations really because he he was, I guess, experimenting with new subjects at the time and really wanted to make it the definitive piece of writing on that particular topic.
1: So, yeah, it makes sense that uh, he, he was so prolific as a scientist, but also as a teacher, given his attitude. And I think you mentioned that he had 45... PhD students. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty remarkable. 45 uh, PhD students um, during his time, I guess, in Chicago or yeah, in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Yes.
1: I mean, and just for context, a PhD thesis lasts at least four years mm-hmm. or so. So that's, that's yeah. a lot of you know, people hours, people years. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's a lot of um, science ideas that you have to come up with for sure project ideas if nothing else yeah
1: and so you mentioned how he he worked on all of these fields and really the all that we've talked about the this internal structure of stars has happened very early in his career and then he moved on to other topics however it seems to me that the physics community really latched onto this concept. And they did not have problems with black holes existing, unlike the astronomers. So yeah. I think there has been a fascination uh, with uh, black holes ever since they were posited by Chandrasekhar uh, in the early 20th century. And other physicists were then studying what, uh, this in more detail, what would actually happen if you tried to compress star even further and learned that Before forming a black hole, it would form something called a neutron star. And in 1967, the first neutron star was discovered. So I think around that time, many people, even in the astronomy community, started taking notice and thinking, well, maybe Chandrasekhar wasn't wrong and maybe Eddington was not entirely justified in dismissing Chandrasekhar. And so that sort of turn of the tide was basically completed by 1983 when Chandrasekhar got the Nobel Prize for his contributions to the physical processes important to the structure and evolution of stars.
0: And it turns out that one of the best ways to actually discover massive black holes, particularly at the centers of galaxies in the universe, is by trying to identify them by the huge amounts of energy that would be detected in X-rays that could be found by space-based observatories. And NASA came up with this idea of launching something called the Advanced X-ray Astrophysics Facility. Um, Great name. Which is, uh, yeah, it's uh, com- thoroughly in- inspiring. And realizing exactly how inspiring it was, they in fact decided to have an open competition for people to actually come up with a better name <laughs> <laughs> for this observatory. And Anna, there was a competition uh, back in 1998, which was geared to do exactly that, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, there was. Yeah, and and it ended up being very popular. They received more than 6,000 submissions from 61 countries worldwide. And as you probably guess, the competition was won by two people who suggested Chandra Shaker's name, or a shirt, Chandra. And it was interesting that the, the two people uh, in question were at the time high school student and a high school teacher. And they had to write all of the uh, Participants in the contest had to write an essay justifying their choice uh, of a name. And it was really interesting to read how how nicely Tyrell Johnson, the, the high school student, summarized the key contributions to uh, of Chandrasekhar Shaker to science and he mentions that the Chandrasekhar's proof of a maximum mass for white dwarf stars first led scientists to really look for other stellar graveyards neutron stars and led to the inevitable conclusion that implosion is compulsory and the discovery of black holes. And he even mentions the one of the books that Sona just talked about, The Mathematical Theory of Black Holes, Uh, (laughs) is quoting, which anyone should be able to take calculations for any black hole perturbations they desire. I think it really speaks to how good of an educator Chandra was as well.
0: Absolutely. And what's quite amazing about the uh, Chandra telescope is that, you know, the the initial project was only supposed to have lasted about five years, yeah. but the observatory is still functioning as of today. And, you know, this is well beyond the initially expected lifetime of, of the observatory and has really 20
1: years, 21 years,
0: 21 running. years and, and it's really sort of revolutionized our understanding of mm. the universe as seen through the lens of x-ray emissions and, you know, mm. therefore really changed kind of our perspective on black holes as a result. So Chandra and his work really sort of kick-started uh, our astronomers' fascination with this idea of black holes. And if the last few years of research have shown us anything, it is that there is so much yet to be learned about the nature of these black holes and how these ethereal entities sort of interact with galaxies in general, and what it really means for the nature of reality. And well, hopefully, I think, uh, Black Holes will soon be featured pretty prominently as one of the major focuses of an upcoming episode. But until then, it's going to be goodbye from me. Goodbye from me too. And see you all later. Bye.
1: Bye.